I've chosen to look at Lorisay 21 with you this afternoon from the Heidelberg Catechism. Lorisay 21, part of the explanation of the Apostles' Creed and dealing with the church and God's forgiveness of our sins. Lord's Day 21, the church confesses, What do you believe concerning the holy Catholic Christian church? I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself by his spirit and word in the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. And I believe that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers, all and everyone, as members of Christ, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that everyone is duty-bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins nor my sinful nature against which I have to struggle all my life, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into condemnation. After the preaching of God's word, we'll sing in response to it, Him 40, stanzas 1, 2, 4, and 5. Beloved in Christ, what is the foundation of the church? What's the church built upon for its stability and strength? That all depends, you might say, on where a church is situated. Here in Canada, our church foundations are usually reinforced concrete. Down in Brazil, they build churches on cinder blocks. Over in the Philippines, you'll find churches resting on wooden pilings. That's one way to understand the foundation of the church. That's a physical way for a physical building. But we all know that the church is more than bricks and mortar, more than timbers and corrugated tin. And so her foundation also is much more. Samuel Wesley put it well in his old hymn, The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. As church, we're built on Jesus Christ. And we see this even when we take apart that old and familiar word, church. What does church mean? It comes originally from the Greek adjective kyriakos, which means, quite literally, belonging to the Lord. Kyriakos was passed down a long way, going through many languages and many transformations. In Scotland, you still hear about the kirk, eventually becoming our word church. And its meaning remains ever the same. As church, we belong to the Lord. And isn't that the way we start our confession back in Lord's Day 1? What's your only comfort in life and death? That I'm not my own, but I belong 
with body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The church belongs to Christ. And that makes the word church a powerful term. A church is not simply an institution, not simply a building. If you're a member of the church, it's so much more than being a member of the gym or a member of a professional association or a member of Costco. Being a living member of the church means that you have a relationship with the foundation himself. Thus, when the church gathers together for worship, something very wonderful is taking place. A worship service, even in a gym, is a meeting between God and his people. For the sake of his Son, through the power of his Spirit, God himself is among us. He's here to receive our praise, to instruct our minds, to shape our hearts. All of this orients us in a new direction. It points us away from thinking of the church in human terms, in physical terms. No, we must think of the church for what it really is. God's new creation. The temple of the Spirit and the Holy Bride of Jesus Christ. That's our theme from Lord's Day 21. I'm a member of the Holy Catholic Church. A church forgiven by the Father, cared for by Christ, and supplied with the Spirit. If Christ is the church's foundation, you would think that we would start by discussing him. But we won't. For we need to take a step back and look at the blueprint of the church, the architect who drew it all up. We need to consider the whole reason that we're here. It's because of our God and Maker the creator and judge of all who is pleased to grant us the complete forgiveness of all our sins. That's where we have to begin, with forgiveness. For without forgiveness, we're just another condemned building, just another herd of sinners stampeding to eternal death. You know that death has sometimes been called the great leveler. That is, death levels all differences between people, takes away every distinction. Death befalls rich and poor, young and old, high-born and low-born, everyone. Take the Titanic as an example. You know that this was a ship with all kinds of people on board. First-class people, second-class, third-class, way in the bottom, baggage-class. All the different distinctions of wealth and society could be found on that ship. But once the iceberg was struck, suddenly everyone was on the very same level. For suddenly everyone faced the very same and very real threat. Death. Death in the icy waters of the ocean. So it is for all people in the judgment of God. Standing before him, there is not one thing that any of us can claim for distinction. All are sinners, and all fall short of the glory of God. All are headed for the same destination in the miry depths. Yet some, through absolutely no merit of their own, some are set apart for rescue. Some are saved from that destruction, selected for a spot in that lifeboat.
that takes us to safety. Some are forgiven. The Catechism puts the gospel in this way, explaining the article on the forgiveness of sins. I believe that God will no more remember my sins, nor my sinful nature, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into condemnation. That is to say, there's been a change in our status. A permanent change. Our sins have been cleared away once and for all. You see then, it's with good reason that the Catechism includes the article on our forgiveness along with these articles on the church. For what is the church but the community of the forgiven? What is the church but the company of the redeemed? Previously, there wasn't anything to set us apart from any other people on this earth, all leveled by our condemnation. Yet out of the whole human race, the Catechism says, God bestows on his people, the church, the gift of his forgiveness. And indeed, how can we separate God the Father's forgiveness from what God the Son accomplished? See how it's neatly slipped into the Catechism's answer. Question answer 56. God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins. It's because of Christ and because of what Christ did. He is the foundation that the architect has chosen. And yet we need to understand this properly. Salvation can only come about if there's satisfaction, as the Catechism says. That is, in order to grant forgiveness, the Father first demands that conditions be met. The rescuer needs to give his own life. That was the whole focus of the ministry of Christ. He came to this earth to teach, to heal, to restore, to encourage. But all of this would have meant nothing he hadn't gone all the way he needed to go the distance even to the cross we read that in Matthew 16 after Peter's confession of Christ Jesus it says began to explain to them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things that he must be killed on the third day be raised to life he must be killed that was the penalty God set Forgiveness was only possible through the paying of a price, the satisfaction of that heavenly judge. How else could we filthy sinners be welcomed into God's glorious home? We didn't read how Jesus' prediction in Matthew 16 turned out. But we all know about those brutal, most agonizing hours that Christ endured. The torture, the crucifixion the rejection at the hand of God himself, and finally, death. We know it happened, and that nothing can take it away. Thus, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians only a few decades after the fact, can put the gospel so pointedly. He wrote there, We are convinced that one died for all. 
God considers that every last one of us has had his or her penalty for sin paid in full. Paid by the crucified Christ. One died for all. Like Wesley sang, with his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. And the result is peace. Peace with God through Christ. Not that we're free from conflict within or conflict without. There is still toil and tribulation, tumult of her war. But as Christians, our peace goes far beyond the surface of things to that relationship that really matters. We have peace with God, the God who created us, the God who one day will summon all of us to stand in his presence. Paul calls it reconciliation. Reconciliation is bringing back together two parties who used to be at odds. It's healing the deep rift between two people, two estranged persons who are always meant to be united. Writes Paul in 2 Corinthians, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. That was the problem, our sin. It separated us from God. But the Father has dealt with it. In Christ, he's dealt with our sins. That we might be reunited to our maker. That's what the church is. A troubled people now at peace. The church is a wife reconciled to her husband. A formerly unfaithful woman made a holy bride once more. Moving forward then, the church has a most precious gift. We have, says Paul, the message of reconciliation. As church, we could put that up as our word to the world. Come here for a message of reconciliation. The message of Christ is the most important thing we have. It's as though God were making his appeal through us. Be reconciled to me. That's the message we hear. Sinners forgiven by the Father. And beloved, that message works a wondrous change. Because we're forgiven, we're freed from our guilt. Completely free. How many people in this world can say that? How many people in this world walk around every day bothered by all the things that they've done wrong, bothered by their absence of hope and their absence of purpose. But here, by grace, we are freed and forgiven. And because of it, we're also thankful. We'll talk about that more later, but we can already say this. If we've received our very lives back from the Father, we should devote these same lives to the Father's praise. If we received forgiveness of all our sins, we should forgive how others have sinned against us. The Father expects nothing less from his children.
Now, some of the phrases of the catechism seem to say it all. We latch on to them because they really get to the heart of the matter. And one phrase near the beginning of Lord's Day 21 is such a statement. After that question, what do you believe concerning the church? That powerful answer is given, I believe that the Son of God gathers, defends, and preserves for himself a church chosen to everlasting life. Gathers, defends, and preserves. That phrase has found its way into many sermons, into many prayers, into many discussions about the church. It's a man-made statement in a man-made document. Yet the Holy Spirit has used these words to teach us an important biblical truth. The church is cared for by Christ, and she's cared for in every way. Here again, we see the divine character of the church. Compared to other organizations, other institutions, the church is of an entirely different quality. The church might have human officers, elders, deacons, and ministers given charge over certain aspects of her life. But what are these lowly men but instruments in the Redeemer's hands? It's Christ doing the real gathering, the real defending, the real preserving. And that makes sense because we're his people. We're a kyriakos, a people belonging to the Lord. We're the people he purchased. We're the bride that he sought. He's intensely interested in us and deeply concerned for us because we are even a part of him. We see that truth in Matthew 16. The conversation Jesus had there with his disciples is actually the turning point of Christ's ministry. For now that they knew who Jesus was, he could tell them about his real purpose on earth. Now that they knew who Jesus was, he could set his sights on Jerusalem, as we read, and on the looming cross. The catalyst is that confession of Peter. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And various answers are reported, each of them wrong. Until Peter, as spokesman for the other disciples, puts it out there, bold as ever, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the good confession. This is the same confession the church makes today. And see right away, beloved, that this confession does not come from us. As Jesus says to Peter, this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. As believers, we don't believe because of us, because we're so religious-minded, because we have such insight into the Bible. It's not even because our parents were believers. This was not revealed to you by man, but it's the Father, through his Spirit, who has revealed to us the Son. That's what the church is, the Trinity's very own project. As that old hymn says, she on earth has union with God, the three in one. And getting back to the church's one foundation, 
Listen to those next words of Christ. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, some people have listened to those words and thought that it was all about Peter, all about how he would be so important in the church. And certainly Peter, along with the other apostles, did have a key role in establishing God's people. But who gave the apostles this role? It was their Lord. And what made Peter such a rock? It was his confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That God-given credo is then where it all begins. The rock on which we build is Christ. He's our stability. He's our unity. He's our potency as the people of God. That's how the church will stand fast through every storm. In Christ, Christ who gathers, defends, and preserves his people. So that, as he says in Matthew 18, even the gates of hell will not overcome it. That's a dramatic image used by Christ, the gates of hell. In ancient times, cities would often stand or fall on the strength of their gates. If an enemy attacked a city, it would do so at the weakest point of the walls, that place wherever a gateway was to be found. Let the assault be directed here. But if that gate somehow stood firm against all the battering rams and flaming torches, often that city would not be taken. That's what wars were then in ancient times, a battle of the gates. Which kingdom would not crumble under the vicious assaults? What city had the strongest walls and gates? The kingdom of Satan attacks the kingdom of Christ. The gates of hell try to overcome the gates of the church. That's the nature of our struggle, writes Paul. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world against those spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Yes, Satan himself is trying to knock down the walls of Christ's church. He wants to see it fall. He wants to see us fail. And Satan works in such varied ways. The battering ram is one approach a very bold, direct attack on Christian truth. Jesus is not God. The Bible's a nice story, nothing more. We've all sprung from the apes. This battering ram, far from subtle, works on some Christians and in some churches, to be sure. There are denominations in Canada that will no longer say that Christ is the only Savior or that the Bible is holy God's word. But more often, Satan tries a different approach. He tries the insidious approach, the hidden root of attack, digging under a city's walls like armies used to do, bit by bit until those walls crumbled for lack of foundation. 
where Satan tries the internal approach, sowing division among God's people, spreading around some new sin, making us complacent behind our thick stone walls. Whatever the strategy, Satan sees to it that his attacks on the church never cease. For even within the hearts of God's people, he inflicts his terrible damage. He does, beloved, when Christians read their Bibles less and less. Satan is on the offensive when parents stop disciplining their children. When elders don't bother chasing after the wandering members. When young people live it up and get stuck in habits they cannot break. Satan is on the offensive when members, young and old, get distracted by so many other things around us. The attractive, the easy, the expensive, the enjoyable things. Things that don't seem so harmful at the moment, but when we look back, we hopefully see this habit was keeping me from studying God's word as much as I should. This attitude was keeping me from giving God my first fruits. This sin was keeping me from walking right next to Christ. Yes, we need to be aware of these attacks, those little things that bit by bit can undermine our faith. We must fight the sin in our life, resisting the devil, fleeing from temptation. But beloved, we do it in the confidence of who we are, a member of Christ's church. For confidence makes all the difference, doesn't it? When we go into battle, we know already we're on the winning side. No matter what, Christ gathers, defends, and preserves his church. The gates of hell will not overcome us. For we're also his bride. As Paul writes, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her, to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. So take your sins to Christ. Take your spiritual stains and wrinkles and blemishes to your Savior. Receive His washing. Trust in His grace. Rest, beloved, in His love. Recommit yourself to the Savior and carry on with a new spirit. Those who have been forgiven in Christ have a new character. On the outside, we look ordinary enough. But on the inside, there's been a marvelous change. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, this follows from being washed in Christ's blood. If anyone is in Christ, writes Paul, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. That's what the church is, a miracle of God's doing. She is his new creation. For God the Father is working to restore us to the way he wants. 
He's making us a people in his image once again. He's getting rid of the old, the sinful, the corrupt, the satanic, and he's bringing in the new. And he's doing it through his spirit, the spirit who is the Lord and giver of life. As he did in the very beginning, the spirit gives life to the people of God. He gives new life that we go from unbelief to faith. He gives new life that we go from wickedness to goodness. He gives new life that you and I can go from hatred to love. Also here we cannot help but speak of Christ. He's the whole reason this new creation has come about. He's the whole reason we're amply supplied with the Spirit. As the Catechism puts it, as members of Christ, we have communion with Him and share in all His treasures and gifts. From Christ, we have these things for using to the benefit and well-being of the other members. Yes, that's our calling in the Spirit. And so being a member of the church, being filled with the Spirit, cannot be a position that we overlook. Being a member of this body cannot be something that we're complacent about. Maybe you've had that before. You get a piece of mail from some organization, maybe from a credit card company, thanking you for your continued support as one of their valued members. Meanwhile, you'd completely forgotten that you'd signed up. Well, such membership counts for nothing. You might as well throw away your member's card. Not so with the Church of Christ. Membership in Him cannot be a privilege that we discard. Nor can church membership be something that we neglect. Because we always assume that others will pick up the slack. That others will do our share. No, if we're members, if we're living members, members supplied with the Spirit, this membership needs to be front and center in all of our minds. Daily, each one of us must give thought to our calling in Christ's church. Are we praying for our fellow members? Are we helping our fellow members? Are we getting involved in the church's activities in this world? Most importantly, are we serving our Lord, the Lord who bought us with his precious blood? But that's just one more result of being reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul told us that we have peace with God through Christ. And now he draws out a consequence of that reality. He says, Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. If Christ has died for us, then we must no longer, says Paul, live for ourselves. No, if we are Christ's church, then we must live for him, keeping his commands. Carrying out his calling. Putting our trust in his grace. Being filled with his spirit. 
Is that what we're doing, beloved? Are we living for Christ? As individuals, as friends, as families, as church altogether, are we living for the one who died in our place? Together, let us build on him our one foundation. Amen.